Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james, netsuite.com slash james netsuite.com slash james welcome to the james outdicher show i know i know i know this is a different voice that you heard it's not james voice I'll tell you what, James is on a chess tournament, so I am filling in for James. My name is Jay. I'm the producer for the James Outdoor Show. I like to call myself Jay the Engineer because, you know, I actually record the show. So this is a very, very uh, special episode because James recently just went on Mark Savon's After Hours Entrepreneur podcast to talk about everything AI. And it's great. Mark asked a bunch of questions about AI, the future of AI, will AI replace workers or not? What's the, you know, AI's roles in media, newspaper, and the future? And will AI dating such a replica be a thing? Not gonna lie, I myself actually had a replica. You know, I, I think this is back in 2017. I was really lonely. I have just broken up with my dang girlfriend. I'm like, hey, you know, I just need something to pass time. I just need someone to talk to. So I just, you know, I saw this app called Replica. It's an AI app. It's a ch- it's a chatbot, you know, but for dating. So I just downloaded it and then I just talked to Replica all day. It's weird because once in a while, Replica actually send you like, you know, like motivation quote, like, hey, how do you feel today? And hey, you know, go get them. And sometimes they will send like weird pictures. Like, I don't know where to come up with all this picture, but it's weird pictures of like, because like I am writing my diaries, I want you to read them. I'm like, that's sort of, you know, infringing on privacy right there. But, you know, after a while, I totally forgot about it because, you know, at the end of the day, it just doesn't feel real. It's feel like any question that I ask, it just doesn't make sense. Anyway, enjoy this episode from Mark Savant's After Hours Entrepreneur Podcast, everything about AI. And if you enjoyed these episodes, make sure you check out the episode with John Morrow about how to become a better writer with AI. It's a great episode about prompt engineering, how to write better. And also episodes 1156, Unleashing the Creative Pandora Box with Vernon Reed, where, you know, they talk about everything, you know, AI again, about the future of AI, basically in music. And thank you so much. Make sure you leave a review, subscribe, and share the episodes if you think your friends will like it. 
Once again, this is Jay, the engineer, filling in for James. And hey, you know, if you listen to this, tweet at James and wish him good luck in the chess tournament. Anyway, enjoy the show. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Mark, did you hear the news today? Patrick Bet David is now a minority um, owner of the New York Yankees. Is he really? Yeah. Wow. I'm surprised he didn't go Dodgers, but that's, that's hey, look at that. Wow. Hello, James. Good afternoon. How are you doing? Oh, we're thrilled. We're thrilled to have you here, James. We've been like, re- you know, reading and watching and listening from afar, and we're excited to dive into some topics today. Excellent. And did I hear you just say Patrick Bet David owns part of the, what did you say, Yankees? Yeah, he just announced it today on his podcast. He bought a minority share. So he said that's like a stepping stone in the future to own, be a majority owner in a different team. Wow. All right. I don't know much about him. He he's like he has that kind of money to buy a baseball team. He might have bought like one percent or point zero five percent, like more like five dollars worth. But uh, <laughs> shots fired, shots fired. Well, I, that's a cool thing. Like I would buy five dollars worth of the Yankees to say, "Hey, I'm a minority owner of the Yankees. Don't don't worry about it." <laughs> yeah, it's it's not the size that counts. It's just that you have a little piece, right? Just exactly. I like that. I like that. That's a that's a, a cool hot take. But yeah, obviously PBD has come out of nowhere. Like when Tucker Carlson left Fox, he's like, "I'll give him a hundred million dollars." Just throwing around this, these these dollars like jump. I you know, and as a Floridian here, James, I'm curious. Are you still in South Florida? I know you had moved here a few years ago. Are you still here? Uh, no, I was there for a couple of years, and then more recently, I am about an hour north of Atlanta. Okay, very good, very good. So still in the in still in the South. Well, we're glad to have you here in. Uh, I guess I'm in Florida. You're in Georgia, but it's all good. We can still be. I, n- I never thought growing up in New York, in and around New York, I never thought that one day I would be a Southerner. But now I'm a Southerner. I eat fried chicken and, you know, all the Southern things. Well, and I read your article, uh, and maybe that's a good place. Maybe that's a good place to start. I'd, I'd love to kind of get started here. But I read your article about NYC being dead forever, and I thought you had some compelling points, you know, about the future of work and the future of culture and the future of the way that we, we interact with each other. And so I think, you know, it's maybe not that surprising that you listened to yourself and moved to a different place. So actually, I'm curious, James, how did that hold up? Do you, would you still agree with yourself in August of 2020? Is NYC still dead or is it coming back? What's, what's the future of NYC? Uh, yeah, I think everything in my article has been kind of coming true, not only for New York City, but all the major urban areas, San Francisco, Chicago, London, L.A., you see, like, like in Miami, there's a net inflow or outflow out of New York City to Miami. Uh, there's a net outflow to Austin, to Atlanta, to Denver, not just from New York, again, from all of these cities. And, you know, you're, you're starting to see, like, the owners of large commercial office buildings simply stop paying their mortgage, you know, their, their loan, and just walking away. It's just not worth it for them to keep running their business. Like, like the lenders now have to take over these office buildings and figure out what to do. Right. And these SaaS companies like Facebook, Twitter, they're laying off tens of thousands of employees. Where, where are these people? I guess because they realize that we don't actually need a Kava bar on site. These people can work from home and still be highly effective, right? Well, that's true for remote work, but they're laying off people because they simply hire too many people. Like when times were good, you know, everybody gets hired. And this happened in 2008, 2009 too. Like I, I asked a friend of mine who was a CEO of a fairly big company when he, he was doing a bunch of layoffs in 2009. And I said, are you just doing this because now this financial crisis gave you the excuse to fire everybody? Like now it's like, oh, the financial crisis, I got to fire everybody. Sorry, everybody. And, and he said, yeah, it was just an excuse because in good times, people just hire too many people. Well, sure. I totally get that. I guess the flip side here is AI has changed a lot of what's happening, right? ChatGPT passed the U.S. medical licensing exam. It's passed the bar exam. You know, when I wrote this article, actually, Jerry Seinfeld wrote an op-ed 
trashing me. But the one point he made, which was an odd point, he said, people love going to work and nobody wants to work remote. And I'm like, hey, you've never worked in an office your entire life. You've been a comedian since you were 18. So much research shows that people, not everybody, but the majority of people like working at home or at least having the choice to work at home. Nobody likes five days a week working in a cubicle, zero people. And then the majority like remote work. This, this is just proven thing, like a survey after survey. And now we're seeing it now. People are quitting their jobs if, if they don't allow remote. So, which is again, different from the layoffs. That's another issue. But New York City is a difficult city to live in, okay? There are rats, there are roaches, rents are high. It's hard to get around. It's hard to get from uptown to downtown. It's hard to get from east to west. You only live there if you're young, because then there's exciting to meet lots of young people and all sorts of subcultures and so on, or you move there for financial opportunity. Well, guess what now? That financial opportunity has dispersed throughout the whole country. The positive of what's happening is that there's these outflows from these heavily urban areas. So now the restaurants in Denver might be better. The, the theater in Kansas City might be better. The entrepreneurial opportunities in Atlanta or Salt Lake City or Miami are better. There's been a, this disbursement of talent throughout the whole country, and that's that's a good thing. Well, it's definitely a good thing, and I'm all about I'm all about merit based work, and that's the way I run my agency, right? I I I started out by paying people for their time, right? You work this many hours a day, but it's much easier. I run a podcast agency to say, hey, you edit a video, this is the this is the reward that you get back, um, and I think that with data and automation and AI, it makes it easier, I think, to to manage those types of metrics. But I think one of the questions that, that I really have and something that I think about, something that I wouldn't necessarily keeps me up at night, James, but the world is changing so fast. And as, as I mentioned a, a moment ago, before my four-year-old broke in with his fake play vacuum cleaner. One of the he had some girls. things to say about AI, but go ahead. Oh, he oh he did. He's like, Dad, when are we getting a Roomba? But he's like, you know, what I think about is ChatGPT passes the U.S. medical licensing exam. It's passed the bar exam. Writers are on strike. Is AI the death of white-collar work? No, not at all. You know, that's like saying, back in 1995, I had this conversation with the head of HBO at the time where he said, let me understand. So this internet thing allows you to send text message and potentially even voice messages over our ethernet cables, over our internet cables. And I said, yes. And he said, that's, that's crazy. The phone companies will never allow that. That'll put all the phone companies out of business and they're huge and lobbyists in Congress. They will never allow that. And of course, now the phone companies are bigger than ever. If you can't beat them, join them. They control the internet now. And, and it, it, you go back to every technological innovation. It never resulted in a net decline in jobs. Okay, look at, look at something as simple as ATM machines. Everyone thought banks won't need branches anymore. Bank tellers, there won't be any bank tellers anymore. It's all going to be the ATM machine. Well, guess what? ATMs increased profits so much at the banks, they made they they started new services that their tellers and bankers do. And there's there's more branches than ever right now for banks. So AI is the same thing. Think of AI as an assistant. Don't think of it as a replacement for you. Think of it as, as an assistant to you, which allows certain people or many people to be much more productive. Now, in order to be to fully use AI, we're going to have to start new companies that really make use of, of the nuances of AI. And that's going to create new employees, new jobs. There's already a job called prompt engineer. Six months ago, if you said, oh, I'm going to be a prompt engineer. What? I, what does he, that even mean? That does, that does, now, those two words have never been used together before in history. Now it's like, oh, we need six prompt engineers. There are exchanges now where people buy and sell prompts for different things. Like it's suddenly these new industries are popping up. And honestly, we haven't even, we're not even in inning one of this version of AI. So I think more jobs are going to be created. People are going to be more productive though. So a logo designer is not going to compete with mid-journey to make logos. Now though, a logo designer, instead of making one logo a week, is going to make 10 logos a week, 10 album covers a week. I spoke to the um, CEO of freelancer.com. They have about 60 million freelancers on there. He said, A, since the AI thing started, we've spiked in the number of freelancers and they're just doing more jobs. Like more money is being transacted because everyone's more productive. Well, yeah, and I, I think that's really what we're trying to accomplish here is that productivity. Stop doing the things you hate so you can focus on the things you love, the things you're 
you're great at. But at, at the same time, like, it, it makes me nervous because the scale is, it, 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 everything is happening so fast. Like, I, I mean, I feel like in 10 years, the world's going to be completely unrecognizable. But what, what I'm trying to do is stay atop of it, right? Like you said, you're not going to be replaced by AI. You're going to be replaced by somebody that's using AI. So I think my question to you, James, you've been in the industry a hot minute. You founded 20 companies. How are you using AI? What are you doing to stay on top of this curve? You know, I'm not using it as much as you would think. Here's how I would use it in different parts of my career. So for a while, I worked heavily in kind of the news industry. Back in like 2007, I sold a company to the street.com, which was in the financial news business. And if I was running that company right now, I would essentially more or less fire almost all of the journalists and have AI summarize. And AI is not ready to do this yet, but it will be within a couple of months or a year or whatever. I would have AI summarize every news event that's happening and just, and you know, and I would, I would prompt engineers. So the articles would be, you know, pretty good. And AI does know more than the average human about anything you would ask it. And it's pretty good at summarizing events. And I would use that to create all the articles. So, and, and maybe five times as many articles as the human flesh and blood reporters were doing. So like that industry will change. Being a reporter, uh, reporting about your local city council, that is going to go away. But there might be more room for curated opinion from humans because AI, their opinion, AI's opinion is worthless. So, but humans have opinions. Humans have intelligent, rational thinking to, to develop their opinions. And quite honestly, we need good curated opinion making on both sides or in the middle. So there's going to be more opportunities for people to do, like you say, what they love. You know, I, I and, and listen, I, I agree with all that. You know, in, in the adoption is at an all-time high too. Like, you know, we talk about streaming, we talk about these AI assistants, but I guess Part of the concern that I have, James, too, you know, you talk about how the internet came about and we have this commoditization of information, right? I remember when I was a kid and I had to write a, a project, the teacher's like, all right, you have to go to the library, you got to pull out this almanac and you got to read through pages after pages after pages and, and screenshots and it was the worst. With the internet, it was like, okay, I've got a hundred different uh, resources that I can use straight from like Wikipedia. So anyway, you've got the commoditization of information which came with the implementation of the World Wide Web. Yeah. AI is, to me, more of the commoditization of influence. Because if I'm a writer, if I'm a newscaster, if I'm a, an intellectual, and I'm using AI to start generating and thinking about ideas, maybe it's my assistant, it's scouring the web, isn't there some sort of moral hazard of using AI as the foundation of our thoughts as we expand on them? I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, Good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say 
the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the, the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, if you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And, you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important, and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Isn't there some sort of moral hazard of using AI as the foundation of our thoughts as we expand on them? Yeah, but I don't think that will happen as much as you think. Like, don't get me wrong. AI is going to change the galaxy. Like, it's going to be incredible. It's it's already been incredible, by the way. This what's astonishing to us now is that we're we're is ChatGPT is AI with language, but AI with computer vision, AI with speech recognition. This has been around for like 20, 30 years. So it's really just this latest incarnation of of AI integrated with these large language models. But if someone asked you to give a speech about entrepreneurship, they don't want an AI to give the speech. They want you to give the speech. So I can go to AI and say, hey, here's my experience. Here's my resume. What should I talk about in this speech about entrepreneurship? And you know what? AI is going to give me a lot of good bullet points. And I could say, tell me more. And it'll give me more good bullet points. And then I could pick pick and choose the ones that I like the best. But no one's going to listen to AI give the talk. They want me to give the talk. They want you to give the talk. Not because we're so great, but we but we're better humans than AI is. Is AI is 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 a digital assistant, and I'm not being a naysayer. I think AI really will change the world, and it'll increase productivity of every job, every industry. It's gonna it's gonna transform industries in that it's gonna cost lots of jobs, but gain lots of jobs in other ways. But you won't have AI give a speech for you. You won't have nobody wants to hear that. You won't have AI like I sometimes with a guest. I'll say what I'll say to the AI. What question should I ask? this guest. It'll give me some pretty good questions. But the listener still wants to hear a conversation. It wants to hear two people talking because the listener is trying to figure out the world just like we are. If the, if the AI is just transmitting from God, like this is what the world's like, humans, maybe they'll listen to that, but I, I doubt it. I, I don't think that's what people are interested in. Don't forget the AI only knows up to what we know. The AI can't move the edge forwards. We have to have new experiences, write new documents, have new opinions, have new thoughts. And that's how the AI continues to expand the frontier of what it knows. Now, it can come up with its opinions and it can expand the frontier as well. But those opinions may be right, may be wrong. Don't forget the way AI works is, given a set of words, what is statistically the next word? Okay, now we have the next word. So to give it a new set of words, what's statistically the next word after that? That is the entirety of what AI does. And it's very good at it, but it's not better than us at expanding the frontier of human experience. Maybe human knowledge, but not human experience. And so I I want to get on board with you. I want to believe you, but I'm maybe I'm a little bit more pessimistic, right? I was reading this article the other day where there's this program, Replica.ai, which is basically a chatbot. And what ended up happening is men were turning these chatbots from Replica into sex bots. Basically, it was their, their online girlfriend. You say, oh, I had a long day. What, do you, what can I do for you, baby? One second, uh, replica.ai bookmark and uh, no, sorry. <laughs> there, right, right, right. What was that? Saying? Well, they actually took away. So this is where it gets good. Replica took away the functionality because they were going to go public and they didn't want that kind of like OnlyFans type of vibe going on. So anyway, they took away this functionality and there were millions of men who said, holy crap, you just lobotomized my girlfriend. I've, I've lost my girlfriend. So I'm thinking, I'm like, I got a four-year-old, I got a seven-year-old. They both busted in during the course of this podcast here. 
are the, is are are all of our children going to be dating chatbots in ten years? Are we are we just doomed to chatbot relationships? Give me a hot take. When you met your wife, you know maybe you were attracted to her, maybe you liked her conversation, um, but then what did you feel that moment when you realized, oh wait a second, this beautiful woman that I've been attracted to, suddenly I think she likes me too. I think she likes me back. How did that feel? Surprising, I think. <laughs> but it, it it was it was great. It was great to get the feel. You know, to 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 have that feeling reciprocated was amazing because you know obviously there's millions, billions of other men on the planet that she could have chosen, and she chose me. So yeah, it felt great. Yeah, it feels great. Like that's the moment you realize, oh, something might happen here, and it's that you know humans are curious people. We're questioning people. We're we're. We're hunters and gatherers. We're seeking things that we don't have. And that makes our, and we're, we've evolved, you know, natural selection. We've evolved to emphasize that feature of us, that dopamine goes up in our brains when someone likes us back or when we're about to kill the bear while we're hunting or whatever it is. You can't get that if you know for a fact, oh, here's my AI girlfriend. Of course she likes me. She's programmed to like me. 80% of attraction goes away, you know, and maybe people like that. Like it's, it's, it's a kind of like AI porn, I guess, but it doesn't replace that great feeling and that dopamine like rush of when you first realized and, and every day when you realize, Oh, she likes me. She still likes me like that. AI can never give you that unless well, AI is programmed to do that. But then, you know, it's programmed to do that. It still doesn't give it to you. Well, and I guess the allure here, and I wasn't expecting to go into this, but the allure here is that is that dopamine release, right? I'm getting that dopamine release hit and it's empty on its face, right? It's like taking a shot of liquor. Like your life is not gonna be better from drinking alcohol, but it feels good in the moment. Porn, not gonna make your sex life and, and, life, and relationship life any better, but it feels good in the moment, right? So I, I almost wonder if this kind of obsession of dopamine, 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 dopamine is one of the problems that we have all these mental health problems happening in the world right now is we're all searching for that empty, paper-thin dopamine release that doesn't actually give that reality, that that real relationship, that real curiosity and ex exploration that you're talking about. Yeah, but you know, that's already kind of happened, right? So like TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all these things have been around for, you know, Facebook's almost 20 years old now, hard to believe. But, uh, you know, there's already so much evidence that if you're college age or or below, all this social media, you shouldn't spend more than 30 minutes a day on it. It's like bad for you. It's this dopamine. The brain doesn't care where it gets the dopamine from. It just wants the dopamine. So you're right. But that's already been a challenge for our society. And AI adds to that. But I still like watching my TikTok videos. There's like incredible videos on TikTok. It's like, like every superhuman mutant kid is like, climbing up walls of buildings on TikTok and doing these amazing magic tricks. And I don't know, all these things are happening there. So it's like amazing. And AI is amazing also, but it's just another thing that's amazing. Now, what's really amazing though, is again, that, that the, the great increase in productivity, the economy will experience because of AI. Just think, think about the other use cases of AI. Like, like you mentioned the Roomba earlier. Well, now you don't have to, you still hire a housekeeper probably, but not every day because you got the Roomba running all the time. The, the technology for the Roomba, by the way, was developed in 1988 uh, uh, and or even earlier. I mean, the Roomba was around after that, but the, the ideas behind it were, were already researched. It was, it was like dumb AI versus smart AI. Just have something that moves in a straight line, cleaning, and when it hits a wall, it changes angle randomly. And boom, that's the Roomba. And computer vision... Okay, this is going to increase productivity. We're gonna we're all gonna commute in driverless cars so we can get work done while we're commuting. Now this is another great increase in productivity. Oh, a lot of things I can write, I can use AI to help me. A lot of things I can pictures I could I will have to draw or design, AI can help me. Uh, a lot of knowledge that I don't know. Oh, you know, what did you know George Washington think about X, Y, and Z? AI can can help me figure that out. So AI is going to help us a lot. And in some cases, replace us just the way cars replace horses, just the way cars replaced runners, you know, and, and, and so on. 
But it's not, it's just going to, everything's going to move forward in a different way, though, in a better way, just like it did with cars, just like it did with planes, just like it did with computers and the internet and, and Roombas and, and computer speech and computer vision. You don't need an operator to pick up the phone anymore. Say yes if you need this, say no if you need that. So all of these things that are AI, this is just a very in-our-face example uh, of AI This because it because it integrates language and we use language all the time. Yeah, the, the empowerment, the empowerment factor. And I'm with you. That's why the best advice I give to everybody is spend 15 minutes a day in chat GPT just so you could continuously learn how to, to use and iterate and, and to your point, prompt engineer. Uh, by the way, this is a live podcast recording in the After Hours Entrepreneur Mastermind. Members, if you've got a question, feel free to raise your hand and I will get you a chance to ask award-winning, best-selling author of 18 books, Mr. James Altucher, a question. And it looks like we do have a question here from Carrie. Hi, James. Um, Hi, how are you? Good. I was uh, taking a look at your website yesterday and kind of familiarizing myself with a few details. And I noticed, obviously, you're a prolific writer. I think you wrote like 22 books, maybe on last count. And yeah. um, you talk That's a lot, lot about- of dates, like 25 right now, but I'm not, <laughs> I'm not counting. Okay. <laughs> and um, I was wondering, well, one thing I read was you said, don't write about anything unless you love it or you hate it. So based on the context of this conversation right now with, you know, talking about the world and where we're at, what's one thing that you love and one thing that you hate? Yeah. So, you know, I love, I love figuring out how like we all have problems. We all underperform at different moments in our lives. Maybe some people are perfect, but most people are not. And I love writing about times when I have failed or gone broke or been depressed. And what's this, not the technique of how to bounce back because nobody knows the techniques, but what was my story in bouncing back and, and, and how did I do it? And there's always a story. It's always an adventure. It's always dramatic. And in terms of, in terms of something I hate, I hate when I think, and I always could be wrong, but I think people are not being rational. So for instance, that New York City is dead article that I wrote, I felt there were significant problems that were being ignored about New York City during the, the COVID shutdowns, the, during the pandemic. And I felt nobody was paying attention to them. And now these are serious problems. Like they have evolved into serious problems. So I wrote that because I hated the fact that people somehow were ignoring, they were being blind to these problems. And by the way, when you write something out of either love or hate, there's much more chance for it to do well, to go viral. As far as I know, mm. that's the last article I could think of that really has gone viral. I mean, something like 20 million people read that article. And believe, I know this because I got over 1 million death threats from people living in New York City. And I'm not even exaggerating the number. Like it was like 10 a second for a while. And uh, and it was very depressing at the time, actually. I haven't even written about how depressing it was to have Jerry Seinfeld plus family members write articles that just didn't make any sense, but just hated me. But the other, the other thing I will say is I try never to write something unless I try never to hit publish on something unless I'm afraid of what people will think of me. So, mm. and I'll just use that article again as an example. I'm a very optimistic person, but that one article, I presented problems where I didn't really know what the solution was going to be. And I was afraid, since people know I'm very optimistic, my readers know I'm very optimistic, and I usually come full circle with solutions, I was afraid, what are people going to think when I just don't have a solution here? And lo and behold, that became my most viral article ever. Much, I didn't intend for that. I've, you know, I've also written things like, don't send your kids to college, don't own a house. I never thought anything would go more viral than those, because those went pretty viral. And then I've also, you know, I've written a lot about, again, my failures and, and how I've overcome them and, and, and so on. So those are the things I, I like and hate. Can I, that's awesome. Can I just add a follow-up because you kind of touched on a little bit. Um, the other question I had was about when you do write like you do, because you write about a lot of different topics, finances, you know, marketing, dating, um, all this different things. We have to be vulnerable to write, obviously. How do you deal with, like the backlash of that vulnerability. Yeah, it's very hard because, and there's different types of backlash, but, you know, people could hate you about something and people have many ways of debating. They can debate the issues 
or they could debate by saying you're a horrible person and explaining why in great detail why you're a horrible person. So there's different types of of backlash. But I've had backlash on almost to some degree on almost every article I've written. I once wrote an article. This is a really long time ago. Um, my one of my daughters was like I don't know, twelve years old, and this little boy at a party, you know, that was in her class tried to kiss her and she was very like flustered. And so I wrote an article the next day titled, I hope my daughters are going to be lesbians. And <laughs> I got a huge backlash on that. Like all these women wrote, or men and women wrote, uh, oh, you, wait till your daughters see this when they're older. They're going to probably hate you. And I'm like, hey, first off, whatever. If they hate me for that, then that's their problem. But, you know, it it is what it is. You can't, Ultimately, you can't care too much. If you care too much about what people are going to think, and I do care what people are going to think probably too much, but if you care too much, you're not going to be able to do good writing because then you're just writing in the safe zone. You're writing what everybody else is saying. No, I already read what everybody else is saying. I don't need, I don't need another one. Like, you know, we have, I have a podcast. Probably everybody here has a podcast and many listeners might have podcast. If, if you land in JFK airport, they give you a podcast at the gate. So like everybody's got a podcast. And I get constantly pitched guests. Everybody's written a book, how to be a leader at business. You know, how to not care what people think about you. Like there's 6,000 books with these topics and just write something new. There's new things out there you can write about. And that's the, AI is going to replace those people, those mm -hmm. writers. Like you have to write about your human experience and there's nothing perfect. There's nothing perfectly good and there's nothing perfectly bad. So that's where we come in and and create the imperfect and and move society forward with that. I, I love that takeaway of I never publish anything unless I'm worried what people will think of me. That and you know I I heard I was talking to Patrick Bet David about this a few weeks ago. I said, how do we stand out in podcasting? How do we do it? He's like, stop agreeing with everybody. Stop agreeing with people. Stop saying me too. Start taking a hard line. And those are some great examples. It also rings true with that episode you just published with Seth Godin. You just released an episode with Seth Godin. We're talking about Purple Cow and you're talking about uh, how to stand out by finding those interesting edges. Yeah. Robert, Robert has a question here too. Robert, would you like to ask James a question here? Well, I'm just going to tag on to, to Carrie's question because when I was reading about you in entrepreneurial space, you said, don't start a business unless you love it. And then you talked about the article that you didn't have a solution. And I kind of feel like entrepreneurship is really providing solutions and starting businesses is about solving problems. Can you expand a little bit on this idea of encouraging people to start a business to solve problems that they, I guess, love or hate. Yeah. Like if you personally have the problem and you seek to solve it, chances are other people will have that problem. But now most businesses are not started because you personally have a problem. There's nothing wrong with that. Like someone who buys a laundromat, for instance, they could have done their laundry at another laundromat. They didn't necessarily need to start a new laundromat. So there's many reasons to start a business. But one thing that's very interesting I've noticed about most businesses is that you create something and you think you have a solution for something, but you don't truly know. And I'll give an example. A friend of mine made this cybersecurity app and his roommate from college was the CIO, the chief IT officer, information officer of a major, it's one of the big five to 10 tech companies. And it's his roommate who's the decision maker and the product costs $150,000. So he brings his team, he flies out to Silicon Valley, presents to the decision maker, the, all, the whole team of the decision maker is there. And the guy says, love this. This would save us $40 million a year. And you're saying it only costs $150,000. We're in. If you just add these one, two, three features, we are in, we're buying this. And so my friend said, oh, this is amazing. It's my friend from college. He has a huge budget. And he said, yes. So my friend goes out, raises money for his business, finishes the product, goes back to the company. And the guy's like, oh, you know, maybe not this year, but next year. And of course, the guy never buys it. 
because maybe he has other things to do with the money that solved $50 million problems. So when somebody says yes to you, yes, this solves the problem, there's no actual information in there. That's like placebo information. The only information is when someone says, no, here's why, because that's real. They're really telling you why they're, they're not going to do something. But there's a lot of reasons people say yes. Maybe they say yes to get you out of the meeting. They, they want the meeting to be over. Yes ends the meeting. <laughs> that might be the only reason mm -hmm. they say yes. Maybe they say yes because they don't know. They haven't really thought about what other opportunities they have. Maybe say they say yes because they think this is cool, but it doesn't really solve their, their biggest problem. But no means something. So if you have a site and you realize, oh, not as many people are using this website as I thought, and everybody, and everyone's telling, my mother is telling me this is a great website and all the other people are telling me this is great. Find someone who doesn't use the website and why they don't use it. That's your real problems that you have to solve. Let's say you want to write a book, okay? Let's say you want to write a book about leadership. Look at the top 20 books about leadership on Amazon and look at the negative reviews. This tells you what none of the authors are saying. Readers are happy to tell you what you have not given them. And that's how you can figure out new topics for books, for instance. So yes, you can find a solution, but sometimes it takes a while. Like Google had a solution for something, but it took them a good five years to figure out what it was they had the solution for. They had a better advertising solution than any other search engine. I didn't care about their search engine results. It didn't seem to me any better or worse than Alta Vista, but Google figured out how to be a better solution for advertisers. I love that idea of being able to find the nose. That that to me is the worst. I, I hate this. Does you, do any of y'all ever get this where someone reaches out to you and say, hey, I love what you're doing. You're showing up all the time. I just, you look so great. But uh, what what do you do? Has yeah. anyone ever gotten that before? That is the worst. That is the worst. Like there's nothing worse than someone reaching out, giving you a compliment and then asking what it is you actually do. That's the worst. So anyway, that's really, really, I think sound advice. You know, I have another question for you, James. I don't want to like monopolize the stage, but I have another question I think is really important. Something I'm thinking about. You've written 25 books, multiple bestsellers. Bucket list for me is writing a book. You know, I want to write a book. It's on my bucket list. But I wonder if writing a book means the same thing now as it did five, 10 years ago. Because quite frankly, I could have my team write a nonfiction book in like an hour just going back into all my old podcast episodes, using AI to rewrite it and putting a little bit of mark in yeah. there. Does that like dilute the efficiency or the purpose of books in general? Yes and no. I mean, yes, you, you could now use ChatGPT and spend an afternoon asking it prompts and it'll write a book. It won't be a good book. It won't be a well-written book. No matter how much, you know, people think AI is going to just keep on improving and improving. A AI is not a good writer. It's going to take a lot to make AI a good writer. And you say your bucket list is to write a book, but do you love writing, for instance? Do you love reading? I read daily. I don't love writing, but yeah, I mean, I think for me, reading is one of the best ways to learn and to, you know, get that halo effect. Yeah. Yeah. And, and reading is a good way to learn to write. Like you read a great writer and you learn to write. You have to love like, oh my gosh, uh, this writer did it this way. That, this other writer did it that way. And I'm going to try this in this new format, talking about entrepreneurship instead of you know, love in the time of cholera or whatever, but I'm going to use that style. And and you can experiment and you could have fun writing a book. AI is not really going to do that. But let me ask you a question. What What's your hobbies? What are your interests? Oh, gosh. What's an interest you had as a kid that you've given up because now you have responsibilities and work? Yeah, sure. Like used to play a lot of basketball, used to, you know, play video games. Now all my free time is basically hanging out with the kids. I like to run. I guess you call running a hobby. Yeah, and 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 do you follow basketball games right now? Not as not as much as I used to. I mean, the Heat go Heat. We're just in the the NBA Finals, so I followed it a little bit, but not not super closely. So, like, there's a million topics within basketball that could be good. For instance, how old are you right now? Uh, just turned forty. Shout out to all the forty year olds. <laughs> right, you don't look forty. So, what if you wanted to play basketball right now? How would you how would you go play basketball? Oh, I'd crush it. I'd go to the local the local pickup spot. I would start draining threes from downtown and I'd be like, who wants the new Steph Curry on their squad, right? Take Tylenol with you. <laughs> like, who could crush you? If you were to play, in, in what court would you be crushed? In what, like, street court would you be crushed? Oh, gosh. Probably, you know, just honestly, going down and, and then playing with, like, the 18 and 22-year-olds, I'd probably have a rough time in the second round. And what would it take for you to be as good as them 
what kind of work would you have to do to be as good as them? To be as good as you once were? Well, I probably need Elon to continue to iterate from Neuralink to like Neuralegs. I think that would be a good start, you know? But I, I bet you with the right training and the right focus and determination, you could be as good a basketball player as maybe not the best 18-year-old, but like you could get competitive. And, and that would not- be a journey. That would be an adventure. That would be the arc of the hero. Like you'd be reluctant to do it. Nobody in your family would be supportive. Your friends would say, you're crazy. Why don't you just keep making money? What are you going to spend five hours a day training for basketball when you're 40 years old? So, But you'll meet your allies along the way and you'll meet the 18-year-olds who will crush you and laugh at you. So more and more enemies. And then finally, hopefully, you know, A, you'll hit bottom first and then hopefully you'll achieve your dream, your goal of like coming back to the basketball court and pursuing your what you loved as a, as a child. That's a book about basketball. That's a story. AI can't write that story. I'm just making that up. There's a million stories out there. What's the history of the shortest basketball players in history? Like, how did they get good? Like, I always think of basketball players as really tall people, but there are some people in the, you know, smaller than six foot who became like all-star basketball players. How did they do it? I've never seen a book about that. So that would be interesting as well. Like I'm thinking, and I don't know anything about basketball. I'm just like making it up. How does one own a basketball franchise? You could write about the business of basketball, like the history of all the franchises, you know, and, 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 you know, how they've got their valuations. How did Mark Cuban buy one? Steve Ballmer, but like what, why are all these internet billionaires buying basketball teams? Why aren't other billionaires buying basketball teams? So there's all these questions I'm curious about for basketball. They could either be personal stories or stories that are unique to your questioning mind. These are all books that AI is not going to write and you would do a better job than AI writing them. AI is really good. Like, oh, you know, then this happened in the Revolutionary War and then this happened in the Constitutional Convention and then George, what, you know, AI is good at like describing things that have happened in a very plain, even if you say right in the style of Hemingway, it's not going to be that great. It's not, Hemingway spent 30 years figuring out how to write in the style of Hemingway. So that took a human brain, which is much more complicated than an AI brain. And so, again, the AI is just statistics. It's like, oh, a Hemingway story, if it starts with these three words, then this is the next word. It's not going to be a great writer. Loving writing, loving basketball, figuring out stories you could tell within that is going to be an incredible book. You don't want to publish anything unless you're worried what people think about you, right? Yeah. I, I, that, that to me is probably one of the most important things I think people can hear right now. If you want to stand out, you need to be willing, I think, to make people upset. Yeah. And, you know, also nobody should write that something just for the shock value, but like, let's take the first idea for you. If you're 40 years old and you want to quit everything and pursue your love of basketball, get better at basketball. Once again, for the first time since you were 18 years old, actually improve with a coach and, and whatever. That's a little bit like of a shocking kind of story. Like nobody does that as an adult and you have to make sacrifices to do that. You might be afraid because maybe people Close to you will say, oh, you know, I thought he was going to be an entrepreneur or this or that. Instead, he's just playing basketball, something frivolous. So there's a little bit of fear there. That, that reminds me of the Arnold movie on Netflix right now. You know, best bodybuilder in the world, decides he's going to be an actor, and then his phone goes dead for five years. But the hero arc, like you said, which if yeah. you haven't watched that, net, that Netflix documentary, highly recommend. Great. Very good. Yeah, that happens to a lot of actors. Like Henry Winkler, who played, I don't know if you remember, played the Fonz on the TV show Happy Days in the 70s. Even Paul McCartney said, Henry Winkler is the most famous person on the planet. Uh, Paul McCartney said that in 1977. And then Happy Days, the TV show ended. Henry Winkler couldn't get a job for eight years because he was typecast. Same thing with William Shatner. He was typecast. He was living out of a trailer before the Star Trek movies came out and he kind of came back. So. It's hard. Every, everything's hard. To, life is hard. And writing about your little corner of that difficulty is always an interesting story. Brilliant, brilliant. And of course, you can listen to uh, James' interview with William Shatner on the James Altucher Show and every podcast and YouTube platform that you like. I'll put links below to make it super easy. James, where's the best place for us to find you if we want to get more James in our life? I guess my podcast or my book, Choose Yourself, or my book, Skip the Line. Those are my two favorite books that I've written. Brilliant. Well, you can find me on Twitter too. Well, James, I, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much, so much, so much for being here. This was awesome. Thank you for having me on. 
I really appreciate you guys asking me on. It's really fun. Re really great questions. Great stuff from from people listening. And uh, I really appreciate it. I enjoy these. Anything that I can do for you, James? Anything in particular that we can do to help support you today? Well, next time on Miami, one-on-one -on -one basketball. Let's go. Yeah. Let's go. I'm, I'm going to hold you to that. I'm going to hold you to that, brother. <laughs> and then we'll play chess right afterwards. It'll be basketball chess. I'm down. Yeah, we didn't even get into your your uh, chess master um, advancement. Do you think you could be an AI robot in chess? No. Uh, computers are impossible to beat in chess. Mm. And I know this because I worked on the first computer that beat uh, Gary Kasparov in 1997, the, who was the world chess champion at the time. Wow. And it's, it's humans were never, computers were ever since that moment were always better than humans. Well, hopefully Elon, you give us the Neuralink so we can beat the humans in chess. Please help us, help save us from ourselves. I think Neuralink, if it fully, the, the full Neuralink, which is not going to be anytime soon, but let's say 20 years from now, that will end chess as a game because then it's all computers. Oh my. Yeah, that's kind of scary that we can't even play games with each other. Like my daughter will be crushing me in Uno. Finally, should be just Uno crush me. Or even poker, like poker, backgammon, anything that relies on statistics or like sheer calculation, computers are just better at. Yeah, the Neuralink thing is crazy, is, is really crazy. I, you know, I don't want to hold you here, but if you've got, if you want to give me a hot take on Neuralink, I'd love to ask while you're here, you know? Well, I think right now it's, it's what they're testing is for disabled people because, oh, let's send a signal to the specific neurons that move the arm. And so it'll move like the prosthetic arm that somebody might have. But to actually like access the internet and retrieve the information and see the information and know the information, I don't think they're anywhere close. We don't even know how the brain works really. So they're nowhere close to, to figuring that out yet. So that's a relief. Because I do think Neuralink is more of an existential threat. Like you're thinking about AI, I think Neuralink it really is an existential threat to big chunks of what we love about being human. So I'm a little pessimistic about that, but I hope it doesn't happen anytime soon. Because I want, I want, I like playing chess. I don't want to play chess against someone with a computer in their head. Then it would be pointless. Yeah, well, it's, it strikes me that assuming Neuralink does what it probably could do, you know, you're not going to be replaced by AI. You're going to be replaced by someone that's using AI. Same concept. You're not going to be replaced yeah. by Neuralink. Someone using Neuralink is just going to be much better than you. And you're going to have basically two types of humans, humans with Neuralink and humans without Neuralink. And how, I don't see how you could possibly compete. Yeah, you can't. It's again, like competing in chess against a computer. The, there's no way. Like if the world chess champion played a computer, a hundred game match, he would lose a hundred games to zero. So, or maybe, maybe, maybe he would draw once, 99 and a half to one half. Yeah. Well, I'm all for solving problems, but uh, I agree with, with James here on keeping our humanity. Humanity is, uh, is important thing to be, thing to, thing to take sacred, hold sacred, I think. Yeah. Hey, I'll, I'll show up for a tic-tac-toe match. <laughs> tic-tac-toe being a solved game, but yes. <laughs> yeah. No, ch chess, obviously a great game. Um, and uh, hopefully one day we'll beat the robots. I don't know. We'll see. Impos That'll be impossible unless we have Neuralink. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, uh, yeah, again, once again, thanks everybody for being here. It's always a pleasure hosting these events. James, just glad to be connected, be on your radar. I look forward to meeting you in person someday.